Matthew chapter 9. All right. We're going to uh, be studying this passage of Scripture. Remember, we saw the convergence of two lives, Jarius with his daughter who was dead and the woman with the issue of blood that converged on Jesus and God did an amazing work. Jesus is leaving this location and he's going to be confronted by two guys that are following him, which is quite an ordeal for them to follow Jesus. You'll see in a moment, but please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, and that's where the two were healed. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him. I I get a kick out of that. The blind guy's following. (laughs) And the whole time they're following Jesus, they're crying out saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Very significant. We'll cover it in a moment. Son of David, have mercy on us. They keep shouting this. And then it says, and when Jesus had come into the house, probably Peter's house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly, I mean, this is the, the idea is do not under penalty of death, sternly warn them saying, see that nobody knows what just happened. But when they had departed, they spread the news about them in all the country. As they went out, Behold, these blind men brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. Multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd having to deal with LAX. (laughs) Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray, Lord of the harvest, to send out labors into his harvest. That's our passage. Let me pray. Lord, unless you build this temple, we're laboring in vain. Any man can give a Bible study, but Lord, unless... You put life to this. We're without hope. So Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would fall afresh on us and minister to us. Touch us, God. Cause us, as that song said, to come alive. Come alive to your living word. That we'd be forever changed. Cause our heart to begin to beat and be filled with compassion. And I pray, Lord, that you do a mighty work this day in this place for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. Don't fall asleep. And turn off your cell phones. Jesus departs and two blind men follow him. And and I get a kick out of it. It's kind of like you're sitting on the beach in the summertime. You see one of those planes go by and it's trailing that sign, you know. And everyone's watching the sign, copper tone or whatever. And and, and that's the two blind men. They're following Jesus and they're saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And he, he actually, they, they follow him all the way to Peter's house. And he, they're saying it the whole time with exclamation, son of David, have mercy on us. And, uh, and, and this declaration, son of David, so that you don't miss the significance of it, it, it is a very important term. And it comes out of First Chronicles 17, when God tells David that he's going to have uh, from his lineage, the Messiah will come and that he will have 
on the throne, the, the son of David. And it's First Chronicles 17, I'll read it to you. It says, and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, God speaking to David, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And then in Second Chronicles chapter 6, God spoke to Solomon saying, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed of their way, they way that they would walk in my law and you have walked before me. And so even Solomon understands that from this throne of, of, of David, would come the Messiah. And as you can follow in the genealogy, uh, both in Joseph and in Mary, the genealogy goes through the line of David and that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And thus, when they say son of David, son of David, what these blind men are declaring is he is the Messiah. Very significant statement. They are declaring he is the Messiah. These blind men following the Lord, declaring him to be the Messiah, going into Peter's house, declaring him to be the Messiah. These men who can't see can see that he's the Messiah, and yet the Pharisees who can see cannot realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And they can see spiritually but not physically. The Pharisees can see physically but not spiritually. And so for them to, to cry out, son of David, have mercy on us, this concept of mercy, mercy is very simply described as not getting what you deserve. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We deserve death for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve death. And God has come that we might have life and life more abundant. The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. When you break the law, you pay the penalty, Right? credit card. You don't pay on time, you get interest charges. That's the penalty, right? Somebody has to pay the penalty. God is merciful, but he's also just. Mercy is greater than grace because mercy requires that someone else pay the penalty for what we've done wrong. And so when they're saying, son of David, have mercy on us, they're saying, God, take our penalty and set us free from the burden of that. When I was a young boy throwing the ball against the wall, I broke a window of my neighbor's garage. The neighbor came over and told my dad, look, I can pay for the window, but somebody has to pay. And I, I, I think your son needs to learn a lesson. Your boy needs to pay for the window. And my dad said, he can't. He doesn't have the money. I'll pay for it. My dad had to pay my penalty. Jesus paid our penalty when his body was broken and his blood was shed upon the cross. Blood must be shed for the remission of sin. Blood is the life force in the human body as it's poured out. The wages of sin is death. Christ died in our place, substitutionary death. That's the beauty of the resurrection is death couldn't hold him because he was without sin. And by faith, we receive his forgiveness. His blood cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And that's the power of Easter. The, the tomb is empty. That's why you get to egg people, right? <laughs> now, mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense. Even though we're sinful, and, and, and though I've been, my sins have been cast as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more, I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, I continue to sin. I still fall short, but God's grace blesses me in the midst of my struggles, and he, he, he lavishes upon me, which is amazing in and of itself. 
And here we, we see what God does and how he blesses us. God's riches at Christ's expense, getting what we don't deserve. I don't deserve all the blessing. I Walking through the White House, getting a chance to pray with the lady, seeing all these things manifest themselves, the great privilege to be the pastor of such a precious fellowship. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. Of all people, me, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And that's grace. That's the only way to describe it. So when they're saying, son of David, have mercy on us, every Jew understood what that was. And it is scaring the daylights out of the Pharisees. And the reason why is because the Pharisees knew Isaiah and they also knew Psalm 72. Psalm 72, which is son of David's psalm. Uh, I'll read it to you. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Verse 12 says, for he will deliver the needy when he cries and the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And then Isaiah 35 Isaiah writes of the son of David, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With a recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb, the mute shall sing and the water shall birth forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Fascinating messianic psalm, or excuse me, messianic uh, prophecy from Isaiah 35. And here it's coming to fruition and fulfillment because these blind men are following him saying, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus lets them follow and declare like this airplane with the sign passing. Everyone's hearing him declare Jesus to be the Messiah. And they're like a trumpet blaring for all to hear. And the Pharisees are upset. But the power of it is, don't forget, Jesus has healed the leper. And you remember when that happened, the leper said, if you will it. And Jesus said, with all my heart. And he touched him. And so the leper was healed. And then the centurion servant, Jesus spoke the word and he was healed from a distance. And this is fascinating what's occurring. Peter's mother-in-law He heals Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if Peter was thrilled by that, but he healed Peter's (laughs) mother-in-law. He calms the wind and the sea. He heals the demoniac and 2,000 swine go over the cliff. The demoniac didn't ask for healing. God healed him anyways. The paralytic, when when his friends tore the roof open and lowered their friend and Jesus pointed to them and says, your faith has healed this man. And he heals the paralytic. He heals Jarius' daughter who was dead. She had no faith. Obviously she was dead, but he healed her from the dead. The woman with the issue of blood, like we saw last week, she reached out. She had faith. She reached out. She touched him and she wanted to scurry away and scamper away. And even in other portions of scripture in this same account, there's another man who's blind and Jesus takes some mud and he spits and he rubs it into his eyes. And I'm thinking this is fascinating because each and every one of us, as we're reading this, he says to the, to the blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And the blind men say, yes, Lord. You can't say no, Lord, because He wouldn't be Lord if you said no. Good, you got that. They say, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. That must've been fascinating. He touches their eyes and the cones and the rods and the eyes. And just, whoa. And he is seeing for the first time. They're like, now I know what the lust of the eyes are. No, I'm just kidding. But he, 
the idea of this and the healing and, the, and all of a sudden they can see and their eyes were open. And then Jesus sternly warned them not to tell anyone, not to tell anyone. But what's fascinating is, is Matthew gives us a, a large picture that he paints for us because we want to franchise Jesus Christ. We want to fit him into a box so we can sell him. And, and we, we've seen this in many denominations where they, they read this passage, according to your faith, let it be unto you, praise God. <laughs> and, and because you believe, brother, because you believe, sister, you are healed. It's like eight <laughs> syllables and healed. Huh. And, and I've, uh, in, in my course in my life uh, as a minister and also as a Christian, I've had people come to me and say, you're, you're not healed because you lack faith. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone tell you that, but that's a little irritating to me, quite honestly. And I, I usually and I'm grateful for Matthew 9 because I, I can turn to them and say, well, maybe my faith is lacking, but praise the Lord, when they lowered the paralytic through the roof, Jesus pointed to them and said, your faith has healed this man. So obviously your faith is lacking as well because I'm not healed. Don't you want to believe for me? You amazing spiritual creature, you. Matthew paints a broad brush because we would love to make the denomination of the touch and heal denomination. Uh, touch your eyes and by faith you'll be healed. And then you, you got the centurion servant who was healed from a distance, the speak and heal denomination, right? And then I was thinking about the guy with the spit and heal denomination. That would be a fun one to be a part of. Or the woman with the issue of blood, the touch and slip away denomination and just kind of go somewhere. But Jesus isn't going to be franchised. He will heal how, when, and where he pleases. And I, I, I'm grateful because at times I don't have that faith. And he still ministers to me. In spite of my lack of faith, he uses those things to touch my life. And he can do the same for you. We're all weak. We're sheep. Sheep are defenseless. We have no fangs. We have no claws. (laughs) We We are vulnerable to vicious predators. And they're out there. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. And this is what the scripture says of the enemy of Satan. And we're sheep. And without a shepherd, we're in danger. And the Lord comes and he touches us and he ministers to us. How he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, this is what he does. And and at this point, he heals these men, but he says to them sternly, see that no one knows of this. Don't tell anybody. Jesus doesn't want to be known as a miracle worker. He's the Messiah. Everybody wants something from God, but they don't want to give God their life. We love to take from God as the sun rises and the sun sets and food is upon our table and the roof is above our head. And we're held on the earth as we're spinning at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour hurling through space while he holds everything in a delicate balance. The earth is so delicately balanced to the sun that if we were to move 5% closer, we'd all burn to death and 5% further away, we'd freeze to death. There, this delicate balance as God holds the heavens, it says, in the span of his hand. And all of us receive from God, but don't want to give him our lives. 
And this is where God has come to set us free. We're bound, we're mute, we're stifled, we're vexed, we're troubled. And God is burdened for his creature. He loves us. We've been created in his image. And he's come to set us free. And he says to them, do not let anyone know this. And yet they go and they depart and they spread the news about him in all the country. Now, I imagine that was difficult for these blind men. They had a cane or a stick. And all of a sudden, anyone who ever knew them, they can see that they can see. And they're saying, well, how did this happen? I wish I could tell you. I just, I just wish I could tell you. I can't. Well, I'm going to. You know, I imagine it lasted all of about like a nanosecond. I, you, ah, don't tell anybody. Okay. I'm just going to tell you. And as Winston Churchill said, if you don't want your enemies to know a secret, don't tell your friends. And I'm just going to say, whatever you do in these coming weeks, do not tell anybody about Easter. Don't tell them about the 9 and 11 o'clock service. Don't tell them about, you get the drift here? Don't tell them that the tomb was empty and that there's hope for their life and that life isn't just an accident and they're not just a cosmic accident and it's not by random chance, but they've been created in the image of God. Don't tell them that, please. Just keep it to yourself. Don't tell them about the transformation of your life or the miracle of what God's done or the restoration of your family or the deliverance from drugs. Please don't tell anybody. Please. Keep it amongst us. We don't want the church to get too big. And you know what? You like the seat you're in. You certainly don't want to give that up or share that with anybody, right? I think you understand. They went out and they told everybody. But more importantly, I'm moved by verse 32. It says, as they went out, behold, they brought to Jesus a man who was mute and demon-possessed. According to Isaiah 35, they go out, they can see, and they go, you're the guy we kept trying to talk to. You never talked to us. Now we can see. Come on. You got to check this guy out. You're going to be better. It's not like he's going to fight back, you know? And and this demon-possessed man who's mute, he can't speak. And how did that happen? I don't know. I sat one time at a table with a, a man who struck me as a very abusive husband. He was all about himself and very demeaning in his conversation, prideful, somewhat arrogant. And his wife was just a, a wilting flower. And he would talk to her and she couldn't even open her eyes. Well, um, I, almost as though her husband continually said, shut up. And some of you struggle public communication and having a conversation because as a child, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And this oppression, hitting the psyche and the mind and thinking your, your worth and your value is of nothing, believing the lie of the enemy and this wilting flower and here this, this, this man, maybe in childhood, being beaten by his father, his mother, mother's boyfriend, one man who was a, a council member that I had the privilege to get to know. He'd been in a foster home from the age of six months to 17 years of age. He struggled with me being a pastor. 
And we had the neatest conversation and friendship that we developed over the course of this trip when I came to realize his heart for disadvantaged youth and watching him interact and wanting to restore this understanding we've been created the image of God and having a really wonderful conversation and building this friendship. And I can, I can only fathom what it was like. He was telling me the abusive homes that he experienced growing up. And here you have a man who's mute. How did he get there? Mm. Something locked his mouth. He couldn't speak. The scripture clearly says it's demon possession. They had gotten a hold of him and he wasn't going to open his mouth. And yet they bring him, these blind men who, who can see spiritually and now physically bring this, this muted demon-possessed man to Christ. And, then, and the demon was cast out and he begins to speak. I think according to Isaiah 35, he probably began to sing. And, and, as, and as, I, I'd love to have a recording of what he said and turning to these blind men and the gratitude. And Jesus delivers him. It says that the crowd marvels. The multitude marveled. They're stunned. We've never seen anything like this. And as they're stunned, the religious leaders, the military leaders, the political leaders, the multitude saying, it, it, it's never was seen like this in all of Israel. And immediately those in positions of authority that have a corner on the market of oppressing people and suppressing the multitudes see what's happening and seeing this man setting them free and mouths open and eyes opened and lives being transformed. The first thing out of the mouth of these leaders is he casts out demons by the power of, of Satan. Literally, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Abraham Lincoln quoted this passage and when, when he referred to, to the second chapter of Mark, and he, and he said, a house divided will not stand. You remember the speech? He, he referred to this passage. He said, we're either going to be fully slave or fully free, but we can't be both. Even demons understand authority. The most despotic kingdoms in the world understand that you must obey authority. And if you try to mess with the authority, you will lose your head. Satan's not going to cast out demons by his own power and divide his kingdom. Even evil understands this. The stupidity and the darkness of this statement. Grasping, as it were, for straws, just trying to come up with some sort of excuse so that these people can continue to be oppressed. They can't stop it. Eyes are open, mouths speak, hearts are transformed. And it's because the son of David has visited mankind. And what does they want to do? The government wants to silence him. Remove him from the vestiges of our culture. Don't let our children know about him. Take him off the edifices of our buildings. I marveled as I looked at the train station in Washington, D.C. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I see scriptures everywhere on the top of the Washington Monument to, to the glory of God. Nothing can be higher than the Washington Monument. No, they don't even list that in the park system. You're not allowed to talk about that. Marvelous, fascinating. But we must suppress the people. Don't let them know. Don't let them be literate. Don't let them know they've been created the image of God. Don't let them know that their rights are inalienable, given by God. Shh. Mute them, silence them stupefy them, possess them, dominate them, own them. And Jesus realizes this. 
he bypasses the Pharisees. And he continues, it says in verse 35, to go about all the cities and the villages. I love that. He doesn't just go to Washington, D.C. and New York and Chicago. He goes to the little hamlets and byways into the little villages and the tiny little places. And he teaches in their synagogues and he preaches the gospel. That's Ulangelian. It means good news that, that God loves you, has a plan for your life and has come to forgive you and cleanse you and pr- provide you mercy and grace and to show you the life that he has intended for you all along and that they don't own you, God does. And you have come that he might have life and life more abundant. And he begins to preach this good news of the kingdom and, and he, he heals every sickness and every disease among the people. But the scripture says in verse 36, when he, saw, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. And the word moved in the Greek means that from, from the bowels, from, from the deepest part of his being, from his heart, it, it, was, it was like a sickening, gut-wrenching burden. He just saw them and his heart was broken. And he, he looked out at the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. I, w- I want to tell you about the word compassion. And, and be careful because this is dangerous. And certainly don't pay attention if you don't want your world to be changed. Compassion. He was moved with compassion. Compassion costs you something. For him to have compassion on you and me, he had to die. Somebody had to pay the price. To have compassion means you have to step into somebody's life. You can't drive by and throw a dollar at a man with a sign. You have to step into their world. You have to walk through their withdrawals. You have to help them find a house. You have to pray with them until they won't let you go. And keep your word that you'll pray for them every day. You have to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It costs you something. You don't want compassion. You don't want compassion. Stay away from that. It's scary. Jesus' stomach was churning. It was moved with compassion. And the reason why the scripture says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They were vexed. They were troubled. They were burdened. They had no shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are open to the most vicious of prey. The reason why our founders wanted our children to be literate is because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And if we can tell them that they've been created by, by some primordial soup and they're cosmic accidents and they've evolved from apes, certainly don't tell them they've been created the image of God with inalienable rights. Stop that. Oppress them and silence them. And you see as, as drugs are going through the roof and teen pregnancies and abortion and, oh, it's a mess. And they're vexed and they're troubled and they're burdened. But where are the shepherds? We've got military leaders. We've got political leaders. And for those of you who think that somehow I had some sort of significance being in Washington, D.C. on a piece of real estate that is probably the most significant on the face of the earth. Let me tell you from the vantage point of God what that looks like. When it says that he holds the heavens in the span of his hand. You come down there to the North American continent, and then you come down there to the Eastern Seaboard, and then you come there to Washington, D.C., and you go down there to the, there's a White House, and you go to the West Wing, right there in the West Wing. Oh, there's a waiting room where Rob is. <laughs> I'm a gnat on the butt of an elephant. That's not where the power resides, that's nothing. 
the most profound and significant moment was my arm around that girl praying for her. My heart was moved. If you could just speak to this person and make, no, 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 no. How about if we speak to God? How about if we intercede and pray? These sheep are without a shepherd. They're vexed, they're burdened, they're weary. Look at the world around you. What is the answer? Is our savior coming on Air Force One? No. Air Force One needs a savior. For Sean Spicer to say, Rob, look at my devotion. I read it every day. That's the seat of power. The word that is alive and living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword that sets the captives free. And he was moved with compassion. They're weary. They're scattered. They have no shepherd. They've got political leaders. I walk through the halls of the military leaders. I see it. And you think that's significant? You don't know God. And he turns when his heart is broken. And he sees these religious leaders and military leaders. He sees the centurions. He sees them all. And he turns to his disciples. He turns to his disciples. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've received his forgiveness and the cleansing of your sin, you are a disciple. So pay attention. This is for you. He turns to you and to me and he says this. The harvest is truly plentiful. He's looking out at a sea of wheat blowing this way and that way with every wind of doctrine. Vexed and burdened and muted and silenced, troubled, heart of compassion. He says, the harvest is truly plentiful. And he says, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Let's meditate on that for a minute. Therefore, pray. Pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Rob, you were with the viceberg. Can you, can, you, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you pray? That's irrelevant. You realize the significance of a man or a woman interceding at the throne of grace on behalf of the harvest? We didn't have prayer Wednesday night because nobody showed up. A handful of people show up after the service in Pastor Brett's office. We're doing a congregational prayer tonight. And I will guarantee you, it's not going to be this full. People think the power's in Washington. You're burdened. You're, you're overwhelmed. And yet there's a world of people that need Jesus. And he says, you want to minister to them? Pray. I I don't know how the message hit you, but it is it is killing me. Because I was so full of myself. And I got to Richmond. I'm showing everybody the pictures. And then I run into Ken Graves, weeping in the hallways, praying for Scout. 
And I'm thinking, I got it all wrong. This man's got muscles in places where I don't have places. He could will things to happen. When he jumps in a water, he doesn't get wet. The water gets kenned. But he knows where the power is. It's before the Lord. This is the hope for mankind. Mercy. His body was broken. His blood was shed. For the forgiveness of sins to set the captives free. Those who were vexed, burdened, overwhelmed, and muted. He's come that they'd know the truth and the truth would set them free. And as you pray, here's what's going to happen. Don't come tonight. Because when you pray, here's what's going to happen. Your heart's going to be broken. You're going to realize where the seat of authority is. Unless God builds a temple, we labor in vain. This is just a message. Without God's presence, it's fruitless. We can sing songs, prayer. Jesus said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. Do we get that? There is a world of people that are burdened, vexed, and troubled. And God is waiting to break our heart for them. But just go about your vain imagination that somehow your observations of Fox News and and the radio that you listen to endlessly and the things you read and the machinations of your mind and all the things that you've come as a solution and the money you need to achieve and the wealth that you need to, whatever it is, would you stop? Because he says, pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest. And he says it to his disciples. I'll tell you what, I'd rather have you show up at prayer than give a dime to this church. Do you understand the significance of that? I don't dismiss what you do. I'm just saying, if we're praying, first of all, I know you'll be giving. But if you're praying, I know that the world will be changing. Come. He gave everything. And he's called you to do the same. There's danger in prayer because there'll be compassion and your heart will be broken and the world will be changed. And we'll come to understand the true seat of authority. Watch what God does. Amen? Let's try it right now. Let's invite the worship team to come on up. Lord Jesus, and you are Lord. And you call us right now, God, as you declare that the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few, and you say, understanding this, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send out laborers into his harvest. And to see that harvest of everyone being moved by every wind of doctrine, and you're calling us to set the captives free, to speak the truth, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And you've come that we might be that mouthpiece How will they know unless someone tells them? And God, you allow us to see that the true seat of authority rests with the king of the universe, the king of all creation, and that's you. And unless you build a temple, we labor in vain. And God, you have 
set us free by your body that was broken and your blood that was shed, that you would have mercy on us and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And so, Lord, you say as often as you do this, this communion, do it in remembrance of you, that you came to set the captives free. And you preached in every hamlet, every village, every city, and you healed every disease. And now, God, you've called us to be moved with compassion, and that comes when we yield ourselves in prayer. And so, God, please, I pray that you would minister and draw us by your spirit, not out of guilt or compulsion, but truly out of a desire to want to make a difference. Help us, God, we pray. Bless us now as we take communion and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.